906 News Radio 680 WPTF. Tom Kearney live in Studio B at uh, WPTF. We're going to have a reprise of a show that we had about a month and a half ago. It's uh, a book by a historian named Kevin Levine who uh, has written a book called Searching for the Black Confederates, the Civil War's uh, Most Persistent Myth. A good interview. The book's got good reviews, and we thought we would repeat this one for you in case you missed out on it. You know, I am a bookish person and like history and like Southern history. And so when Dina Mihalik, who is the publicity person at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, said, Tom, would you be interested in reviewing this book and talking to the author on the radio? And I said, sure. The title of this book is uh, Searching for Black Confederates, the Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. And the author of it is and Kevin, if I don't do this right, correct me. Kevin M. Levine. Is that right? Actually, very close. It's Levin. Levin. Almost. Levin. Okay, that's what I wanted. I, you, you, you explained it to me, as Ricky Ricardo would say the other day. <laughs> but uh, And I have really—sometimes uh, when we, we take books to review and to have authors on, you like the books, but, but, but it's, it's a struggle. This one is not a struggle. It's worth reading, and it deals with a question— uh, that comes up uh, fairly often in conversation about people who are interested in Southern history and in the Civil War and the question of slavery and so on. So I, I, I recommend it to you. Uh, it's published by UNC Press, and your bookstore uh, would, will be able to get it if they don't have it. And if not, it will be available at the usual places, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. And you've just heard Kevin Levin. Did I do all right that time? You got it, yeah. Okay, okay. And um, uh, Kevin is uh, a scholar. I think he's probably what you would call an independent scholar these days. He's not an academic as far as I know right now. He may have been and he may be again. He is the author of something called Remembering the Battle of the Crater, which those of us who are uh, follow the Civil War know has to do with Petersburg. I think I'm right about that. War as Murder. And the award-winning, he has an award-winning blog the Civil War Memory, cwmemory.com, which I looked at today. And he has a lot of other things, as a matter of fact. He's a virtual factory of things. But he's written this book, and it's about black Confederates. And I, I've been reading around in this, this area for the last 50 years at least. Uh, and uh, I found out I learned something today. I'm, I'm not too old to learn. So, Kevin, uh, let's talk about... Uh, uh, the Civil War's most persistent myth, and that will lead yeah. us to black confederates. I'll just turn the title on its head, and, and yeah. we can go there, and that'll give you a way that, uh, to talk about something that you certainly know about and uh, will not be constricted by, by my direction. I hope you'll let me kibitz a little bit along the way. <laughs> Absolutely. Great to be with you. Thank you. Uh, what is the most persistent myth of the Civil War? Yeah, um, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, you know, for for a lot of Civil War enthusiasts, Civil War buffs, uh, at at one point or another, they you know they certainly come across this this narrative, this Black Confederate narrative, or this myth of the Black Confederate, and you know basically it comes down to this: it comes down to the claim that anywhere between so it's a very narrow claim, anywhere between five hundred and a hundred thousand African Americans fought as soldiers in the Confederate Army, so. Right off the bat, I mean, between 500 and 100,000, you know, the warning lights should go on right away, that we can't, you know, actually nail it down 
um, where the people who are claiming that these men served can't even sort of agree on on the numbers. So the so the range here, of course, is is deeply troubling. So it's it's again, it's a, a very narrow claim about the racial profile of the Confederate Army, and you know it's interesting because I think there is obviously much more that's going on here behind or that explains why people are uh, are making this claim about um, about the racial profile of the of, of the Confederate Army. And I think what's going on here in large part is is a reflection of our changing Civil War memory. And so what I mean by that is that in recent decades, um, you know, at least since the 1970s, you know, our Civil War memory, our, our collective memory of the Civil War has undergone significant change. And so for much of the 20th century, I think Americans, and when I say Americans, I'm, I'm speaking mainly of white Americans, uh, tended to remember the Civil War as a war that pitted uh, white Southerners against white Northerners. And, you know, it was very much a reunion narrative. So Americans were, were sort of excited to sort of celebrate the men on, the bo- on both sides and, you know, depict them as brave men um, fighting for their respective cause or causes. But they didn't really worry about what those causes were. In other words, no one's investigating, you know, into the causes themselves. And, and, and I think that allowed um, some of the tougher questions about the war and Reconstruction, mainly slavery and emancipation, to be pushed aside. And the problem, of course, is that coming out of the civil rights movement, you know, there's a lot of new scholarship that's beginning to filter down into the general public. Historic sites are beginning to focus more and more on the issue of emancipation and race and slavery, and specifically uh, the presence of black Union soldiers. Um, And I think for some people, you know, who are... They're interested in commemorating and celebrating their Confederate ancestors. That became more and more difficult because increasingly they would ha- they were having to answer for the issues of of slavery in the Confederacy, and so the Black Confederate narrative really emerges out of this shift in public memory of the Civil War, and specifically within a group of people or among a group of people. Um, you know, who again, who had a vested interest in 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 wanting to be able to to continue to celebrate and honor their Confederate ancestors, even at a time when that was becoming more and more difficult. And so, the Black Confederate narrative—if there were Black men fighting as soldiers—here's what it comes down to: if there were Black men fighting as soldiers in the Confederate Army, uh, then Confederate descendants, descendants of Confederate soldiers, no longer had to worry about apologizing, if you will, for their, for their ancestors. So it was a way of, um, of, of staying in, in good faith, if you will, with, uh, with their Confederate ancestors. Let me suggest something to you and go back a little bit further, if I may. And this may sure. be outside the purview of what you were willing to talk about tonight, but if it isn't, uh, I can remember taking a Southern history course where the professor at some point in the semester or year that I was in there went through a business of dealing with the way that uh, the people that we call Southerners before the Civil War looked at black people and how they defined them. You know, when mm-hmm. when uh, Chief Justice Taney defines yeah. black people, he defines them as essentially non-human or, or something verging on that. 
and and what he was saying to us about the period during the late part of the Civil War when the Southerners considered and and I enjoyed the the writing that you did about Pat Claiborne, for instance, uh, mm-hmm. and we'll we'll come back to that. I hope uh, suggesting that that Southern that that the blacks uh, slaves be armed. Uh, yeah. What they were saying uh, was they could rationalize slavery and keeping uh, black people in a the in the peculiar institution, which is the favorite term of historians, and in in the position that they were in of inferior of an inferior position and not uh, equal uh, as being some other sort of folks. Uh, I read a book one time, or actually interviewed the author of a book uh, about the Moravians. You may know in North Carolina they resided in Winston-Salem. They were Germans, and they held slaves in the early days, but they started letting the slaves go to church, sitting in the balcony, and they were interested in saving their souls. And by Lord, they found out that they had now made them into people. And it meant that they couldn't keep them as slaves, if you see what I meant. They, yeah. By, yeah. by admitting them into the religious situation. And one of the problems, I think, if the South decided to arm Confederates and make them parts of the army, whether integrated or separate units or whatever, they were going back on something that they had been maintaining all that's along. Right. Is that not right? Yeah. I, I, think that, I think that's right. I, I mean, I, I think— and I like the fact that you're sort of going back into the antebellum period, that period before the war, because certainly white Southerners, and again, it's always difficult to sort of generalize, um, because as, you, as you're sort of alluding to, um, you know, white Southerners come in all different shades, right? And the institution of slavery uh, will look one way in the Upper South, another way, of course, uh, along the coast of South Carolina, and, and then, of course, in other parts of the Deep South. But I think what's important here, of course, is that you know by the eve of the Civil War, certainly chattel slavery um, and white supremacy, um, you know, have become deeply embedded, uh, you know, in the American South. And and slavery, you know, it's it's not just a region with slaves; it is a slave society. You know, this is a region where slavery, you know, comes to define every aspect of how people live, even for. For non-slaveholders, it could not um, function without the slaves, and that's why what that's Lincoln right. did made a difference. Well, I, th- I think that's right, and I think, of course, um, you know, a certain a number of things stand out. Of course, by the eve of the Civil War, you know, one of the things, of course, is the fear of slave insurrection, and certainly, you know, uh, white Southerners have a memory of uh, of Nat Turner's rebellion. They, they, of course, are always constantly concerned about, you know, slave unrest in the Caribbean, um, and even the rumors of slave unrest um, are, are often enough to, uh, to to cause white Southerners a great deal of concern. And I guess the point being that that, that sort of natural racial hierarchy, uh, that racial status quo based on white supremacy is well in place by the eve of the Civil War. And of course, the Confederacy uh, is uh, attempting to defend that institution, right? It's, it's Attempting the goal, of course, is the belief. The assumption is that slavery will be safer outside of the Union than within the Union. And of course, for the border states, the slave uh, slaveholding states that remain in the Union, uh, they're still on the side of the belief that uh, slavery will remain safer in the Union. So the Confederacy, of course, those mainly all of those states in the Deep South, um, you know, plus other states. They are committed to maintaining 
uh, that institution, the culture of white supremacy, all of that. I think, again, just to make one crucial point here, that quite often this discussion about the place of African Americans in, in the Confederate, um, first the Confederate Army specifically, but within the Confederacy as a whole, is often discussed outside of the context of this broader history. And I don't think you can even begin to understand attitudes towards African Americans and how they were employed in the Confederate war effort without understanding how slavery functioned during the antebellum period. Okay, let's stop right there. It's a perfect place to have a break and come back and and talk about what you just, the last words you just said, and that is how the slaves were employed and how many of them were. And I think I, I was hoping you'd use just one term in that situation that had developed in the South in terms of uh, economy and society and uh, politics and so on, I think it's what we usually call Jim Crow. And, uh, and well, a little bit later in the century, but, but I get the point. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it, it, yeah. it's a, a term that uh, describes the, 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 the whole—I can't find the right word, but the, the, what it all adds up to. And it is going to go away, though— as a problem, well, it's not going to go away as a problem, but it appears to be fixed, or we have a kind of apartheid in America for about 100 years, and then we have what right. Eric Foner and some other people have called the Second Revolution, and that's where part of your interpretation takes up, I think. Yep. Well, we'll find out about it. Yep. I'm, I'm teasing you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> His name is Kevin Levin, and he is the author of Searching for Black Confederates, the South's Most Persistent Myth. We've sort of got the myth now. We're going to find out how we searched for black confederates. If you want to join us, if you have a question about the topic at hand, the topic we're talking about tonight, 919 is our area code, 860-9783. News Radio 680 WPTF 924. Our guest tonight is Kevin Levin, who has a new book called Searching for Black Confederates. The Civil War's Most Persistent Myths, and we're going to talk about the search here in just a moment. But I did want to mention to you, uh, by way of advertisement, uh, that he has a, a positive review material on the, the cover, a blurb, I think is what this is called, and Fitzhugh Brundage, who teaches at Chapel Hill, uh, is one of the, and who's been our guest at least once, uh, uh, has an approving uh, statement, and uh, David Blight, who's one of the top historic history dogs, and I, and I mean that in a compliment, uh, in the United States. He just won a Pulitzer Prize for writing a biography of Frederick Douglass, for instance. And he will be at NC State on this the weekend of October 4th, uh, taking part in something called History Days. And if you are interested in Southern history and Frederick Douglass and things like that, you may want to look at NC State's History Department website to find out about that. And we'll, we'll try to mention some more about that. But... Uh, Kevin, uh, searching for black confederates. We have about four minutes. We we went a little long on the first segment, so we'll we'll have a short segment here, but we'll get it all in the end. But uh, uh, you uh, you you lay out the situation that you pretty much have talked about uh, earlier, and then you talk about how black uh, did take part in the Confederate war effort one way or the other. Uh, uh, and so I think we'll take you to there now. Yeah, look, Confederates, uh, if they have any chance of winning this war against the United States, are going to have to employ, you know, or uh, rally uh, as much of their enslaved population as possible. And they do, from the very earliest days of the war. Tens of thousands of impressed slaves 
work, um, you know, constructing earthworks uh, for the Confederate military, uh, building and repairing rail lines, uh, working at places like Tredegar Ironworks in Richmond, manufacturing munitions, anything that will free up as many white men to shoulder a rifle, they will do. Um, the men that I write about specifically in the book, however, um, are what you would ca- would have called body servants, or what I call in the book camp slaves, uh, just to clarify their legal status. But these were um, you know, individual enslaved men uh, brought into the military by their masters, you know, usually Confederate officers from the slaveholding class, and they would have performed any number of functions uh, for their um, slaveholding masters. And that would include preparing meals, it would include cleaning horses, preparing uh, the office for long marches, packing things up, carrying things on long marches, serving as couriers, um, you know, with you know, commanding officers or even family back home. Um, anything that the, that the master needed, this enslaved individual would do. And so, you know, we have this picture of Confederate armies as predominantly white. That's how we... We imagine them. But in fact, uh, there would have been thousands of enslaved men marching with Confederate armies during the war. In fact, if you can think of Lee's Army of Northern Army of Northern Virginia marching off north into what becomes Pennsylvania and the Battle of Gettysburg in July of 63, his army would have numbered somewhere around 75,000 men. Perhaps as many as 10,000 enslaved men traveled with that army. And, and they, again, they made the Army of Northern Virginia and any Confederate army uh, possible. Uh, These armies cannot camp efficiently, they can't march efficiently, and they can't even fight efficiently without the presence of enslaved men. So, um, you know... May I I say something for a second? Sure, go ahead. What you've just described has a danger in it, though. Yes. Because you're taking slaves into an area uh, where they are free, and uh, that's already been... Uh, the future, they, they might be fugitive slaves, but, but anyway, that's a very dangerous thing to do. That's, that's absolutely right. Many of them do run off when mm-hmm. they are brought into free territory or when the Confederate armies are in close proximity to the Union army. And, and that, in fact, does happen plenty of times. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that, and you touched on this earlier, uh, that had to do with the federal, uh, the federal army, the, the Northern army, uh, they uh, t- took in black troops, and we had a movie, I think, called Glory that, that yeah, glorified that situation and, and brought it to the attention. I'm not sure how accurate the movie is. I think it probably is mostly accurate, but it's probably been ro- romanticized a little bit. Yep, but, absolutely. Uh, uh, but still, it brought it to the attention of people. And this is in a, at a, a time when race relations in the United States are, are, are a little bit on edge. And we need right now to take a break for the news. We'll be back with Kevin in just a moment. 933 WPTF, Tom Kearney here on Monday night. It's September 30th. Here's where we used to do a little promoing. And tomorrow night, uh, a lady named Jean Anderson will be here to talk about uh, I think the book is From Kiln to Kitchen. And it's about uh, recipes from some of the beloved pottery makers of North Carolina, a combination of those two things. Well, if that's a little bit... Not clear. Tune in tomorrow night, and we'll clear it up for you. And uh, uh, Wednesday night, uh, Dr. Funkhauser will be here for the necrology for the last couple of months. And Friday night, of course, we'll have Friday night trivia. Tonight, we're talking with Kevin Levin, 
Searching for Confederate, uh, searching for black Confederates, the Civil War's most persistent myth, and it has to do with blacks in the service of the Confederate Army. And uh, if you're interested in anything that that uh, Kevin is talking about tonight, our number is nine one nine eight six zero nine seven eight three. Kevin, uh, what were you, we were about to talk about camp? Well, you were talking about camp servants, I believe, mm-hmm. but there were and and. Uh, the uh, the uh, Confederacy, the Confederate government, impressed uh, um, slaves, uh, blacks, to do a lot of other work, you know, digging trenches and so on. But as I rem- do, I re- not remember that a lot of owners were not willing to give the slaves up regularly to do that, uh, and, and indeed uh, uh, wanted to be paid in some cases for it. Uh, that, that was yeah. one. Does that sound right to you? Oh, that sounds, that sounds, yes, um, you know, impressed slaves, uh, essentially that, you know, how that worked is the Confederate government, you know, impressed the, the enslaved individual, and of course the, the owner was, was paid. Um, there was, there was significant pushback uh, at, at different parts of the, during different uh, times during the war from, you know, uh, from masters, from slave owners, you know, who obviously felt as if their, their property was being uh, you know, taken away without their consent. Uh, there is some evidence in North Carolina and Virginia that uh, there was some support uh, for slave impressment, that these slave owners understood the importance of, um, of utilizing their labor for the benefit of the Confederacy as a whole. Um, so there is some debate among historians, but, but certainly uh, some slave owners would have pushed back against the Confederacy. The Confederacy you know, intruded on every aspect of um, of of its citizens' private lives, which we often forget um, at different times during the war. But, you know, impressing slaves was certainly one one way in which that happened. One of the things that the, that the slaves at home were still doing was maintaining the agricultural pursuits of the South. Absolutely. Uh, and and uh, de- uh, bringing in supplies and everything, which was ultimately one of the real problems of, of the South. And uh, since they, they were, for all practical purposes, blockaded de- during the whole war and so on. So when I, and But I, you, you made the good point. I, I'm not trying to compete with you, but uh, that uh, we were talking about property here and, uh, and uh, the people who owned the slaves didn't want to see them disappearing if they could, if they could avoid it. Yeah, no, I, I, again, I, I think it is uh, a good point. Um, I, I guess what, what I was pushing back on is, uh, is that, again, there is some evidence to suggest that, that slave owners um, were able to see beyond, at times, their own um, specific needs uh, as property owners. They were able to see sort of um, what the Confederacy needed uh, you know, if they were going to prove to be successful in its bid for independence. Um, I think later in the war... Certainly, that kind of nationalism, um, you know, was difficult to come by as as more and more people, you know, began to see the the writing on the wall, right? That 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 this that this, the military defeat was uh, was more and more likely. But for a time, there 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 did seem to be a little bit of support in certain parts of the Confederacy, and I, you know, it also speaks to the fact that uh, you know many Confederates, you know, understood slavery as a benefit to the Confederacy, that it was a great strength, not a weakness of the Confederacy. You know, again, if you can employ, you know, all of these enslaved people uh, in various capacities, you know, perhaps you do have a chance to to win against, um, you know, an enemy who's, you know, um, 
resources seemed unlimited. Uh, in the end, though, what happens is that uh, whatever small number of, of slaves who may have been employed in something verging on being in the military, um, it was only very, very late in the war that, and then I mentioned General Pat Claiborne, who served in the Trans-Mississippi yeah. region, who suggested that the slaves be uh, impressed into the Army, That's that any number of them did. And, and, and I think it's your contention that the, the uh, Confederate, the blacks and the Confederates pretty much happened after the war was over. Yeah, I, I definitely want to be clear here that the Claiborne's proposal to arm slaves, you know, once President Jefferson Davis heard about this in early 1864, ordered Claiborne and everyone else to cease talking about it because he understood what a charged issue this was. I mean, he understood that this could threaten that debate about enlisting, you know, slaves as soldiers could, would undermine the very cause of the Confederacy. The problem, of course, is by the middle of 1864, you can't. You can't confine that debate. Confederates throughout the country, are, you know, were debating this issue of slave enlistment, and you know, they were very—it was a very, it's a very vocal, uh, very divisive debate. And again, I think what stands out here, at least in my mind, having researched this for so long, is that no one uh, during this time between mid 1864 and early 1865, you know, regardless of their position on enlistment, for or against, no one during this period, um, at, you know, in their writing, uh, in their speeches, suggests that black men were all already fighting as, play, as, as soldiers in the Confederate Army. This was going to be a fundamental step in a new direction for the Confederacy. And as I, you know, as I mentioned in the book, it's not until March of 1865 that the Confederate Congress barely passed legislation authorizing slave enlistment. But of course, the war is over before um, they, they can make much of anything uh, you know, with this new policy. The war ends uh, in 18, the spring of 1865 for the Confederacy as a white man's war. That's how it began, and that's how it ended. Do you have any sense uh, uh, of uh, one, one of the fundamental things that was wrong with the Confederacy is the one that you're, and uh, their op opportunity to win the war was one of the things you're talking about now, which you will continue with, I'm sure. But one of the other ones was the whole issue of states' rights, the thing that they believed in. That uh, And we, we were talking about the Confederacy arming uh, blacks. Was there any sense of whether, say, North Carolina preferred it more or South Carolina preferred it less or Tennessee or whether there was one particular area? That that's, was... a, that's actually a, good, a really good question. There, there has been a little bit of research done on this, and it, it turns out that those areas that are, were not directly impacted um, by the Union Army tended to be against it. So if you're in Texas, and Texas doesn't really see much of a Union presence uh, during the war at all, um, they tended to be uh, against the policy of slave enlistment, right? They because they're not impacted directly by by Union military. But places like like you know the Richmond area, Virginia, North Carolina, um, other parts of the Confederacy that that understand the writing on the wall that's so much clearer for them. Um, they are the ones, and it's not in, it's not uniform. They're the ones where you find um, a bit more support for enlistment. But I want to stress here that even if you supported slave enlistment, it wasn't because it, you know it wasn't a matter of you believing that slavery as an institution would end. Uh, many of them believed 
you know, look, maybe we have to free the, the individuals who fight as soldiers, maybe their immediate families. But this was not a general emancipation policy. Most people believe that you could, um, you know, engage in a limited emancipation and preserve the larger institution of slavery. So let's not sort of make the mistake, as many people do, in believing that the Confederacy was engaged in some kind of civil rights project uh, by the very end of the war. That certainly was not the case. Uh, they were attempting to save slavery in the end. And one of the that was the thing that I was trying to get to back when I first back earlier in the program is that mm-hmm. apparently to save it they had to to change the way they looked at it, and uh, uh, ultimately yeah, uh, they were that not. Never happened. That never happened. Exactly. That couldn't happen. I, and I think the fact that they they waited so long, right, um, and it had no impact on on the end of the war, it gives you a sense of just how wedded. Uh, the Confederacy was to the institution of slavery, that, that they could, even in the face of defeat, even with the writing on the wall, uh, they, they still really couldn't bring themselves to, uh, you know, embracing this, this project. We have a, well, a caller on the line, a lady uh, who is one of our radio family, and with your mm-hmm. permission, I will plug her in and, and see Absolutely. if she has a question. Sure. Ms. Charlotte, good evening. You're on the air with Kevin Levin. Absolutely wonderful program. And I hope that this you will find this um, acceptable. Um, <clears throat> you know, being owned by somebody and having no freedom, that is a god-awful horrible thing. But, Tom, when I was a child coming along and on into adulthood and so forth, <clears throat> I was given to believe that the United States of America was the big ba- our, uh, bully and so far as slavery is concerned. Do you, do you know... Who, uh, what country first had the slaves? Um, I'm not sure I, I entirely understand the question. When you say which country had the slaves, um, which co- yeah, yes, which country first had black slaves? So slavery, of course, if you're speaking of, of colonial British North America, slavery, of course, is present in all of the 13 original colonies. Okay, well, that's, um, you know, that's not what I mean. Okay, I, uh, Charlotte, rather than spend a whole lot of time playing guessing games, tell us what who, who you mean. Okay, okay, I, I know that there has just been a plethora of misinformation about the slavery issue. And, in fact, um, <clears throat> um, Portugal was uh, the country that went in and got the slaves first, oh, and sure, then they distributed sure. them to other countries. But... Sure. Like I said, I always thought the United States was the big, bad, bully, mean guy. But um, Brazil, Brazil had more slaves by many times over, like five or six times, than any other country. But I've never heard that until last yeah, year. So, so, so the Atlantic slave trade, of course, you know, if you're if you're talking about the total number of, of enslaved Africans that are brought to the Western Hemisphere, most of the percentage-wise relatively small number end up in what becomes the United States, you know, in during the colonial period. And that's because, of course, places like the Caribbean and Brazil, slavery is much harsher. Um, you know, they're, they're cultivating uh, sugar. Uh, the death rate is much higher. And so you end up having to replenish the enslaved population. But in British North America, the 13 colonies that develop, um, you end up seeing, um, you know, a, a more stable slave population. 
that's reproducing uh, naturally. The difference, of course, for you know slavery in British North America, and of course, eventually, the United States, is that, and what makes slavery in the United States eventually uh, so so violent, if you will, um, so distinct, is that slavery is drawn along the color line. That uh, that race is what defines the difference between being enslaved and being free. And that, I mean, in the long history of world slavery, that wasn't always the case. And so, of course, um, laws eventually, you know, um, reinforce uh, the distinction between black and white, free and unfree. And that takes hold by the middle of the 1600s, the middle of the 17th century, in places like Virginia, uh, North Carolina, and South Carolina. Well, you've just given me a lot of knowledge, and I'm so grateful for it, but, <clears throat> excuse me, um, <laughs> the other sad thing is that right this minute, slavery is going on in numerous countries, Africa huh? and some other yeah. countries, and nobody's saying anything about it. And, and Miss Charlotte and Kevin, we need to go now because we need to take a break. But Charlotte, thank, thank you for listening and for, for joining Thanks us for tonight. Question. Oh, I always do, darling. Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, if I can be romantic, or not romantic, uh, maybe, I'm not sure what the right word is for just a second, but but about two weeks ago or three weeks ago was the anniversary of uh, the, uh, the uh, I can remember the quote, I believe, that the that a Portuguese slaver appeared off Hampton Roads with the first slaves that were... Oh, yeah, 1619, yeah. Right, in 1619, so it's 400 years ago. Uh, our right. guest is Kevin Levin. Searching for Black Confederates. We're only going to let you smell of this book tonight because we only have a limited amount of time. But it is about the Civil War's most persistent myth. And in uh, a United States that is plagued by racism and race relations and much of which is bound up with our history, uh, this is a book worthy of your attention. We have one more segment coming up, and we'll be back with Kevin in just a couple of minutes. 952 and I remind you again, we're going to talk about cookbooks tomorrow night. Tonight we are talking about a book entitled Searching for Black Confederates, The Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. And we, I can commend it to you unreservedly. And I, I think I read the part of, or at least who gave the blurbs, David Blight, who won the Pulitzer Prize in History, or maybe biography last year, and Fitzhugh Brundage, who teaches at the University at Chapel Hill. Uh, about the, the book, both very complimentary. The author is Kevin Levin. And Kevin, uh, my re reviewer's handbook says that at this point I'm supposed to say to you, well, we've come to the end of the program. Is there, uh, you get the last few minutes. Is there any particular subject we haven't touched on that you'd like to mention in the time left? Well, not really. I think, you know, it's, um, I think we've given a little taste of the, of what's in the book. And, and I, I like to think the, the book is, um, you know, it, it, is a, it is about a specific narrative of the Civil War, a, a narrative that I think is uh, is filled with myth. Um, but it's also, I think, you know, if you're looking for a book that gives you an insight into, you know, why or you know why Americans today are still, why we have such difficulty coming to terms with uh, the history of the Civil War, the history of Reconstruction, the tough issues of slavery and race to come out of uh, of, of the Civil War. I think this book is is accessible. I think this will be uh, it sort of serves as a nice introduction to those uh, to those broader issues. So, um, so you know, I hope people are enjoying it, and 
and and uh, profiting from reading it. May I testify? As in the Baptist, do you understand what I'm talking about? <laughs> and that is, I think one of the things that I really learned about this is uh, one that that the belief or advocacy of the idea that there was a lot of black confederates is a relatively recent idea. It did not develop during the war or immediately after the war, but rather as a part of the civil rights movement. And also where you touch on things that were engendered by the, uh, the, uh, the attack uh, at the the Bible reading in Charleston uh, uh, back in 2015, when I think nine people were killed and something happened that uh, I'm sure I thought it was going to happen someday, but I couldn't imagine how it was going to happen. And that is that you would go to Columbia, South Carolina, and there wouldn't be any Confederate flags on the on the fairgrounds or the state house. Yep. No, it it is a recent it is a recent development, or this is a very new myth. And you know, the other part that I spend a lot of time on in the book is that you know it's obviously exacerbated or spread, you know, by the internet. Um, You know, we now get our information online and. We plug in these keywords into Google, and we click on the first link, and we we'll click on the yeah, first link at the top of the page, and we accept what it says uh, as gospel. And quite often, it steers us in the wrong direction, and um, that's the story of the Black Confederate myth. Uh, you know, in recent years, it is really a a product of our inability to um, successfully or effectively search the internet. It's putting information out there like uh, you point out on some website where they, they talk about their 10,000 or 25,000 or 100,000 yeah. black veterans when, in fact, there were nowhere near that uh, many. In fact, there weren't, wasn't very much of an organized effort at all. And yet, and the word that you use that, that, is, that is still needed more and maybe more than ever now is reinterpretation or reinterpretation somebody to yeah. explain to you what the, what the numbers mean yeah i'm sorry i stole your stole your 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 point there but uh, mm-hmm. kevin i want to thank you for being on and i uh, i always like to say goodbye to my guest off the air so i'm going to put you on hold if you'll do that if you'll stay there for just sure. a second is that okay kevin levin searching for black confederates the civil war's most persistent myth published by unc press just out I uh, think it's worthy of reading. You can find it at your bookstores uh, uh, where you would, would buy your books at the usual sources such as Amazon and, and Barnes and & Noble and those kinds of places. 